Ancient Greek philosophers, such as Aristotle, thought that the universe was infinitely old and thus had no beginning. During late antiquity and the medieval period, many theistic thinkers broke with this tradition on theological and philosophical grounds. For example, the 12th century medieval Muslim philosopher Al-Ghazali argued that the idea of actual infinities entailed various absurdities, such that the past must be finite, and the universe must therefore have had a beginning. Al-Ghazali made the finitude of the past a premise in an argument for God known today as the Kalam cosmological argument, writing that every being which begins has a cause for its beginning. Now the world is a being which begins, therefore it possesses a cause for its beginning. Belief in a universe with no beginning became fashionable again in the 18th century due in part to the influence of German philosopher Immanuel Kant. So as philosopher of science Stephen C. Mayer observes, few physicists or astronomers at the beginning of the 20th century doubted the infinite age of the universe. But then in 1927, Belgian cosmologist and Catholic priest Georges Lemaitre combined Einstein's theory of gravity with the observation of a Doppler shift in the light from distant galaxies to formulate what would come to be known as the Big Bang theory of the origins of the universe. Big Bang cosmology has developed over time, but the basic picture of a universe with a beginning a finite time ago has been the scientific consensus since the 1965 discovery of the cosmic background radiation left over from the Big Bang. To quote from a 2012 article in New Scientist, the Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe, complete with the laws of physics, out of nothing? As Marcus Chown points out, Big Bang cosmology describes the evolution of the universe from a hot, dense state, but it does not say anything about what brought the universe into existence. That is, Big Bang cosmology offers a description of the cosmic past as finite, not an explanation of that finite cosmic past. Now, as atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton recognises, if the universe had a beginning, then that lends support to the Kalam cosmological argument. Well, as atheist Nobel laureate in physics Stephen Weinberg has said, the Big Bang theory is as certain as anything in science. I suppose nothing in science is ever mathematically certain, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, but it is the kind of certainty that simply makes it not worthwhile considering alternatives. According to atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. 
So we can take as our first premise in a Kalam-style cosmological argument the premise that there was a first physical event. And we're going to add to our premise that there was a first physical event, premise two, every physical event has a cause outside of itself. Suppose I ask you to loan me a book and you say, I don't have a copy right now, but I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy and then I'll lend it to you. But suppose your friend says the same thing and so on ad infinitum, that is to infinity. Well, two things should be clear. First, if the process of asking to borrow the book goes on ad infinitum, I'll never get the book. Second, if I get the book, the process that led to me getting it can't have gone on ad infinitum. That is, somewhere down the line of requests to borrow the book, someone had the book without having to borrow it. Likewise, argues philosopher Richard Pertill, consider any contingent reality. The same two principles apply. If the process of everything getting its existence from something else went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have existence. And if the thing has existence, then the process hasn't gone on to infinity. There was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. Here's a way of putting an argument for our premise too. One, anything contingent has a cause outside of itself. Two, physical events are contingent. Three, therefore, every physical event has a cause outside of itself. So our first uh, syllogism or unit of argument in our clam style cosmological argument goes like this. Premise one, there was a first physical event. Premise two, every physical event has a cause outside of itself. Conclusion, therefore, the first physical event had a cause outside of itself. Now we move on to a, a second syllogism, carrying forward the conclusion of the first and treating it as premise one in this new unit of argument. So premise one, the first physical event had a cause outside of itself. Premise two, the cause of the first physical event can't have been a physical cause, from which it follows that, therefore, the first physical event had a non-physical cause outside of itself. Using the language of dependency rather than contingency, philosopher Dallas Willard puts the argument like this. The dependent character of all physical states, together with the completeness of the series of dependencies underlying the existence of any given physical state, logically implies at least one self-existent, and therefore non-physical, state of being. 
Well, a, a self-existent and therefore non-physical state of being that caused the existence of the universe is at least a good slice of what theists mean by God. Let's turn now from the beginning of the universe to the structure of the universe. This is what's called cosmic fine-tuning and the argument for design from cosmic fine-tuning. Philosopher William Lane Craig notes that scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions given in the Big Bang itself. In addition to the laws of physics themselves, this fine-tuning is of two sorts. First, when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations, you find appearing in them certain constants, like the constant that represents the force of gravity. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants. Second, there are initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. For example, the amount of entropy or the balance between matter and antimatter in the universe. These constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. A change in the strength of the atomic weak force by only one part in 10 to the power of 100 would have prevented a life-permitting universe. The cosmological constant which drives the inflation of the universe is fine-tuned to around one part in 10 to the power of 120. The odds of the Big Bang's low entropy condition existing by chance are on the order of 1 out of 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Now, Craig argues that to detect design, in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be conformity to an independently given pattern. When these two elements are present, we have what's called specified complexity, which is the tip-off to intelligent design. Craig gives this homely example of specified complexity and inferring design from it. He says, thus, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. If you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, you can bet that this is not the result of chance, but of design. So our fine-tuning design argument would run like this. Premise 1. Things exhibiting specified complexity are probably designed. Premise 2. The fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity. 3. Therefore, the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed. Now, the main objection given to this fine-tuning argument is what's called the multiverse objection. Uh, as atheist Richard Dawkins suggests, there are billions of universes having different laws and 
constants. Uh, of course, we could only find ourselves in one of the minority of universes whose laws and constants happen to be propitious to, or that is, to allow our evolution. But there is a strong case for not believing in the existence of such a multiverse, at least not one large enough to undercut the design inference from fine-tuning. As the agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis has written, multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from universe to multiverse. Davis points out that there has to be a universe-generating mechanism, and actually that mechanism itself would need to be finely tuned. So Davies concludes that the multiverse theory cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life.